This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Alexis McLeod, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Asian and Asian American Studies at the University of Connecticut. I'm co-host of this channel along with Robert Talese, Carrie Figdor, and Sarah Tyson. I'm joined today by Shay Welsh, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Spelman College. She's here to discuss her new book, The Phenomenology of a Performative Knowledge System, Dancing with Native American Epistemology. So thank, thanks for joining me today um, to talk about to talk about your book. Um, it, also, congratulations on the book. It's a really it's a really great book. I really enjoyed it a lot. I think it's it's doing really important work that not enough philosophers are doing. So thank you. Thanks. <laughs> so, so so first, I wanted to ask you um, like how you how you got into philosophy in general and uh, how you came to the topic of this book in particular. Uh, yikes. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I got to philosophy like in one of those mystical divine right sort of things mm. insofar as like I took I took an intro to ethics class I don't know maybe when I was a sophomore and uh, I failed it and um, I blame this 90% on the teacher though <laughs> to this day <laughs> I still look back and think god damn man what were you doing um <laughs> But I swore that I would never take philosophy again, and it was the dumbest thing on earth. And you know, why why did I have to take this class for a requirement? Um, and then, like my graduating semester, I still had one humanities requirement to take, and the only one that was available was another intro to ethics class hmm. that was taught by a different guy, um, much better teacher, much less personality, <laughs> um, and. I don't know if it was that he actually was teaching it or that I just was ready. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but it was just like within a week, it just absolutely changed my life. I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't imagine there being anything better in the world than, than that. And um, I was graduating and I remember saying to somebody, like, oh, I wish people could still grow up and be philosophers. Wouldn't that be neat? Because I didn't know there were still, like, actual philosophers in the world. And he was like, oh, you can be a philosopher. You just have to go to graduate school. And I was like, what's graduate school? And, I mean, to be fair, like, I'm first generation. And I, you know, I was just fumbling through college and, you know, just just minimally surviving. Right. Um, and so I kind of looked it up. And I was like, holy shit, I can be a philosopher. <gasps> that sounds fancy. <laughs> and um, 
So I stuck around an extra year and I did like the whole major in a year. And, um, and actually I got a 4.0 the whole year. That was like the first time I'd ever made A's ever in college. And I was like, Whoa, I was like, this is for me. (laughs) And, uh, so I decided to take a year off and go party in Tokyo just to give myself a break and get some life, you know, some, some experiences. And uh, while I was there, I studied for the GRE and, um, read a bunch of philosophy on my own. Like I went to the bookstore and got some Japanese philosophy books and stuff. And, and I applied to grad school from there and I got in on some affirmative action shit. Cause the, I'm sorry, I swear a lot. Um, That's okay. I do cause too. the school that I went to was just like, n- like no women, like none at all. And the only way that I knew how to apply to graduate school was like by where the weather was good. Hmm. So I went right. to the entirely wrong graduate program <laughs> on the first attempt um, but I got in and that's all that mattered. And then, I mean, that was just it. That was, that was, I mean, it, for me, I've always felt like it was, it was my calling. I felt like it is, it is the meaning in my life. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty emotionally attached to my projects. And mm. so when, when people say something like, oh, your book is really good and I really like it and it, really does something for me or it really helps me think about things in different ways I feel like you know that's the reason why I'm alive Mm. which might seem like might seem like a little over the top but you know when we're all looking for a reason to be here like that that kind of helps me make sense of it all no I mean that sounds good I mean you can you can tell it seems to me from the book too you can tell your kind of passion and you can see that in the in the in the writing the way that comes out in this book particularly well that's good yeah (laughs) So how so you started uh, on a on in, in a different topic, right? And when you were when you started in philosophy? Oh yeah. Um, well, I mean, honestly, the first thing that I did when I started graduate school is I I asked them if there was native philosophy and if I could do that, mm. and they told me there was no such thing. <laughs> I've heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I ended up in a program that was all philosophy of science and action theory none of which I do. And there was um, only one woman professor there and she happens to be a feminist political philosopher. And I did, um, I ended up changing graduate programs, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, because I was not in the right place. But like, while I knocked out my master's there, I did all of my work, like independent study with her outside Mm -hmm. of my core classes and trained hardcore in feminist political philosophy. And so like, when I went up to Binghamton to, to do and finish up my PhD, um, I stayed, so I, that's how I stayed into feminist political philosophy and feminist ethics. Cause that was like the, the specialty of the program. Right. So I started there and I just, I just kind of, if you ever look at my work, it's all very drastically different <laughs> and it all is just where I'm at in my life at that moment. Hmm. Um, I don't feel compelled to stick to a canon. I don't feel compelled to stick to like a specialization. I just, if I find something that I feel like there's something to be said, then I just, I go for it. And I end up having to teach myself like entirely new discipline, like sub disciplines. Mm -hmm. And it takes me a really long time. Um, But I'd rather be doing that than kind of like rehashing the same sort of subject matter, like, to the point where I hate what I do. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. 
So I started, I mean, and, and I'm still like in that, you know, I still consider myself um, like a feminist philosopher. You know, I do feminist political, feminist ethics, um, feminist epistemology. I do all of that stuff. Um, after this project that I'm working on now, I'm trying to think about ways that I can bring what I'm doing now to the to feminist ethics and maybe feminist moral psychology. I'm not sure how to do it yet. So I just, I just go where my little heart leads me. And, um, I just kind of try to enjoy the ride as frustrating as it, as it can be. <laughs> that's the, in my, in my view, that's the best way to do it. That's kind of similar to what I do as well. Kind of all over the place. With oh the yeah. Project. Oh no. I noticed. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, you everything. Okay. My bad. <laughs> it's, it's, that's a fun, you don't get bored with one project all the time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> So in this book, one of the things that I thought was really cool and, and, and something that you don't see a lot of um, is a focus on movement and dance in particular um, in connection with meaning that you talk about. It's what, That's really at the core of the book. And I, I, I wanted to see if you could say a little bit something about how that how that works in the project. So I get, can you be a little more specific about what you mean by the connection between dance and meaning? Because that is well, huge. So, so is it so the idea of an expression of meaning through dance, right? Is that is that kind of the idea at the core? Like, I mean, in which way that 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 meaning is expressed through dance, or that it might be a way of expressing particular kinds of meaning, like like something like language, or or broader than language, or or different. I mean, yeah. So, um, in that book, I talk about it as expressing meaning, and then in the project that I'm working on now, I'm talking about it generating methods of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, and I guess you can think of dance very broadly. Right. Um, and also meaning very broadly. I think that um, embodiment, I, I feel like, and it has been my experience, and, and obviously I write from a very specific subjective position, it's it's my experience that all of my meaning all of the time comes from my body mm. and how I understand the world and how the world comes back to connect to me like with purpose and and the ways that I go around digging in my consciousness or whatever for for ideas I'm I'm constantly engaging in some kind of movement I, I think I somewhere use the example of like if I'm struggling while I'm writing. And then, and there's like an intuitive idea, like I start sort of like dancing around, like in my office or in my chair. And I'm like, what is it? What is it? And, you know, I just kind of like sing and dance and I'm like, shake it out, shake it out. Where's the idea? What is it? And like out of nowhere, like, boom, I shake out this idea. And I'm like, there it is. It was in my body. And I just needed to move it up to my brain, which, you know, not to get some dualist perspective, but you know what I mean? Uh, so it was like implicit and I had to move around and make it explicit um, that's just like a, that's just a quirky, cute little example that, right. you know, right. um, but, so, but meaning, I guess, and me, I guess meaning makes no sense without movement hmm. in, in anything. Like I can't imagine having any kind of meaningful experience or, or behaving in, in meaningful sorts of ways without movement being involved. And I think that dance is a sort of purposeful, um, like very poetic, but are, but analytic way of, of engaging in meaning through your body that happens all the time by itself anyways. Mm. 
that makes sense. Right. So there, I mean, one thing I was wondering in, in Native American traditions is, in general, is there is there something particular expressed that's not that goes kind of beyond what's expressible in spoken or written language in, in, in dance? Or is there something is there something different going on? Well, I guess there are two ways to look at it. I mean, one is that I guess it's kind of universally true that the body, like as I repeat over, like the body knows things that we don't have words for. Right, right. And and for me, like my big thing is always like the intersections of affects and intersections of emotions that are real but that we don't have language for. And so I I don't think and I and this goes for gesture too. Like, I don't think it's a different language. I don't think it's an extension of language. I just think it's language. Mm. I just mm. think it's nonverbal language. Mm. Um, I don't think it's pre-verbal language because a lot of people will try to get into that whole, like, more primitive notion of, of expression and dance. But I just mean, like, it's, it is such a clear means of communication. Um, I think if you were going to look at it from like a Native American perspective and, and possibly true for most other indigenous oral oral traditions, it it would be true that dancing says things because it's alive, it's in movement, it's in motion. Um, and and the idea of the written word as as dead and static in itself, right, um, already puts a limitation on things that verbal language can do in if it's been written down um but like narrative a lot of times i mean it's not like when people engage in narrative oral storytelling that they're they're static i mean it's it is a very involved practice as well that involves embodiment and movement maybe not always dancing but something of the sort so um i think once i i tend to i tend to agree like once something is written down it's dead at that point because the idea has been captured and tamed and now you're just passing it out. Like, right. you know, like a, you're passing it around like a picture. Right. Right. Yeah. They're in the, uh, in the Maya Popovu. There's a, uh, there's something that's interesting to, near the end. They talk about um, the reason they needed to write it down because it, because, because the Popovu could no longer be seen with the idea being that it was originally supposed to be performed, not, not kind of read as a, as a text. And that the reason they put it in this text is because like they, the Spanish were suppressing this. Right? And so, right. which is which is interesting because it seems like what's being expressed there and what's being expressed in movement and and in and, and dance is something that you that you really can't say. Is that is that kind of an idea that that arises in in, in the traditions that you're talking about? Uh, it's not it's not something that I have personally found um, discussed extensively. I mean, all of the stuff that I've read from the native and indigenous dancers talk about the way that your body goes inside to find, you know, knowledge and knowing from the inscape and bringing it mm-hmm. forward and being able to, to communicate that through the body. Right, right. Um, but in terms of, like, dancing being something specific um, in the way that you're talking about, I think that it's implicit in all the stuff that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't, I haven't seen anybody, like, hash out, like, a hard analytic argument that that's true. But I, I assume that it follows. Right, right. So one thing I wanted to ask about is that you talk about uh, one of the interesting things that you say early on in the book. You talk about this distinction between knowing as active and dynamic um, and native epistemology versus knowledge as de- de- uh, dependent on what you call thingifying human experience. 
um, which is the latter, which strikes me as very similar to what you see in the early Chinese text uh, Zhuangzi. Um, what are the key differences between these two kinds of knowing? Um, so the the short version of it is is just that Western and Eurocentric frameworks of knowledge and knowing and truth are about our ability to objectify the world so that we can mm. take ownership and possession of of things of the world, and that we can we can partake. Uh, with them as if they're commodities and, you know, exchanges. Right. Whereas um, an active form of knowing is all about what you're doing with with what and how you know, mm. and that it's not something to be owned. It's not, it's not a way of going out into the world and exerting control mm. over the world and over others but it's a way of participating in the world. Right. right. So I think it's, I think it's just the way of looking at your role in the world. You know, like one is a perspective of domination hmm. and the other one is participation. And if you conceive of it, like if your intent is to control and dominate and objectify and possess, then you're always going to conceive of of knowledge as a as a thing that you lock down mm. and that you can take for yourself and then you can sell off somewhere else later. But if you think of knowing as dynamic, then that's always going to be about leading you to ways of leading and living your life and how to engage in practices either interpersonally or with the world that creates more meaningful relationships with your existence in it. Mm, right, right. Knowledge as a kind of action dynamic. That's, right. that's interesting. And you talk about this kind of, kind of connected to, because in the analysis of knowledge, you talk about this connected to truth as well, which, which ends up being a kind of dynamic and active notion of truth that you call truthing, which I thought was, uh, was fascinating. And you connect this to what you call the procedural analysis of truth. Um, I wonder, could you say a, a bit more about how truth is uh, dynamic in this way? Yeah. Um, so first off, the tr- the term truthing um, was also coined in some of the indigenous science uh, works that I had. So I just want to point out that I didn't coin, coin <laughs> it, but whenever I read it, I was like, of course, truth. Right. That's, that's exactly the word I'm looking for. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, is whenever I started reading native epistemology and learning more about it, it just seems so obviously true. Mm. Um, And the idea of truth being this sort of proposition, this static proposition seems so banal and uninteresting and uninformative about what truth is really supposed to give to our lives. And I, you know, I I think I I talk in the book, I, I try to articulate like, there are accurate things and you can, statements can be accurate or inaccurate. Right. Right. Um, But the way in which you use this information to, to engage as a person with others and in the world is, is what makes true thing. Um, So long as you satisfy those requirements for, for truth and native epistemology, which is, you know, the respectful, successful performance of some action for some goal. Mm. Um, Mm. And for me, truth is, is a normative concept mm. because what it, it's, 
telling us something very important about about our perspectives. Right. And when I think of like bland, like old school epistemology, analytic epistemology, I just think like these conversations really have no purpose. Like they're, they're doing nothing in the world. Mm. Um, but when you think about truth as being a function of action and that you can determine truth by your ability to truth, right. Um, by how well and you go about your actions with the things that you know to be accurate or not, that says a lot about who we are. And that says a lot about who we should be and how we're, how we're engaging what we've come across. Um, Cause like in, in the work that I cite from John Dufour, you know, he talks about these social practices of knowing. And for me, that's, that is the relevance of truth to our lives philosophically is that um truth truth has no truth is really uninteresting when i'm sitting here alone in my office like knocking out chapters in books like oh i know this to be true like who fucking cares um but it's like if i find out something to be the case and then i go out into the world and i start acting on this information that i that i happen to think is accurate mm. how am i using it that says something really important um it's beyond it's it's beyond just claiming to have knowledge it's it's claiming to be in relationship with the truth mm. um through ethical ways of knowing and acting right yeah this is interesting there's there's actually some kind of close similarities with some of the things that you see in, in some of the things I work on in the Chinese tradition in the Han Dynasty, um, where uh, human concerns come into the ish, come into the picture when you're talking about truth, right? So right. as you as you mentioned, being normative, right? That part of what we're part of what we're thinking about when we're thinking about what something uh, whether something is true is whether it there's a property that we're actually seeking and that we actually care about that we can actually kind of like do something with, right? Right. <laughs> this is this is this this strikes me as very similar to what's going on in, in Native American tradition. And the thing is, is like, I I think one of the reasons why, you know, I'm always trying to put forth the idea that this isn't distinctive to Native or Indigenous peoples. This is just the perspective of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's so, like the right view, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is it is another way of, of looking at our existence in the world. Mm. And so... There's a lot, and, and it's becoming the case that never, you know, it's becoming a hot topic in environmental ethics and um, and just in some small areas of scientific methodologies about incorporating this this native or indigenous perspective on ethical practices of, of truth, related to mm. truth, because the way that we engage in science should be enhanced or constrained. Um by what we're, by these normative practices of, of being truthful. Mm. And, um, and I think that it's just, you know, and somebody once mentioned, like, I can't believe that your publisher let you get away with that title because (laughs) it's, it's, you know, it's a monstrosity (laughs) and it's, it's convoluted. And to be fair, 
that wasn't the title that I picked. I really was just going to title it Dancing with Native American Epistemology. They, they always make you change it for some reason. <laughs> yeah, but the, the idea from the publisher was that they wanted it to appeal to a broader base, which is right. true. I want it to appeal to a broader base. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I try to flesh out these ideas to the best of my ability to show the relevance of this perspective to everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it would be great if scientists and doctors and um, political philosophers were taking these perspectives into account when they were talking about what they thought was true. Right. And I think that if they did, then the world would look like a lot. Um, it would look like a much better place. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, so how do you because this is something that comes up in my own work, too. How do you balance this idea that, OK, you're talking about uh, tradition and what a tradition says versus talking about what the correct view is, something like that. I mean, because oftentimes I find myself saying things like, um, well, I'm interested in what the the ancient Maya thought or what the early Chinese thought, but I also think this is plausible and we should actually, we should we should take this seriously, right? But there's sometimes it's, it's presented this tension between the two where people kind of conflate the two the two or think you're doing one and you're not doing the other. Doing the other. How do you balance those two? Do you, do you generally kind of see a, have a problem with, with that kind of thing? I don't think so. I mean, not for myself. I think that one of the ways in which Native and Indigenous philosophy has been excluded up until this point was to for other people to convince themselves that these ideas are constrained to the tradition. Hmm, and right. that it's not for them. Right. It's, right. Just, it's simply only in this group, right? Yeah, it's simply only in this group. And it sure is a good thing that all those people have died off because <laughs> now I don't have to learn it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, and, and for me, it's just obvious, you know, um, that, that, that certain ideas are beneficial to living a good, a good life. Mm. Um, and I feel like when, when people try to say, when they try to cordon off something like native or indigenous philosophy, they're doing it to their own better, like, for their, to reinsure their own privilege, mm. that they don't have to take these ideas seriously because it doesn't belong to them. But right. it's just, these are just perspectives on the world and they're good ones. Mm. <laughs> and so mm. maybe, maybe it would be a good idea if you thought about it for a minute. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I, I found, I find really plausible that comes up in, in uh, Mesoamerican philosophy and that you talked about, about here too, is this idea of what you call blood memory, right? Like kind of like connection to to the past, connection to ancestors, things like this, and the idea that's that spirit as well as aspects of body are kind of passed down um, to, uh, to 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 descendants. Um, how how does this how do you how does this work in the in the traditions that you're that you're talking about here? Is it is it a, sh- a spirit that's shared between generations, or does one generation influence the other and it works in that way, or is there like a multitude of different ways that this that this works? Um. Also not something that I've read a full-on scientific study on. Um, also, something that is huge in Black feminist like mm. theory, mm. right? Um, so blood memory, while the, the phrasing, I think, is distinctive to Native peoples, um, it's a phenomenon that is much wider um, and more broadly experienced than people first think when they hear the term blood memory. Mm. Um I, there, I think there are a couple of ways you can think about how blood memory works. Um, 
one of them would be the notion that the spirit of the universe, which, you know, in my book, you know, I, I point out in different um, nations have different names. Um, mm. The one that I use the most is the one that uh, Viola Cordova uses, which is Usin, right? So that pervades all things and that is, you know, forever. So we, we've all got a bit of Usin in us and mm. that Usin keeps going through us. Um, the other is that there's a greater knowledge in the universe that um, is cut off from us. Or it's not necessarily cut off from us. It's cut off from most people, but not, not. Um, I think maybe a Western term would be like not the devout. I mm. think that you can through ceremony you can access some of this knowledge. It's just you know um, sacred knowledge, right. but that um, that is also shared within each person. And then you have the you know the spirit of the ancestors that go with with people right forever. It's an accumulation of your ancestors of everyone who's gone before you. Mm. Um, and it's that notion of the ancestors that I think that's, it's the most, um, commonly used. Um, and I think like, if you were going to put like some, if you felt compelled, if you felt compelled <laughs> to look at the science, right, that would be, um, like the genetic inheritance of things mm. like trauma. Right. Mm, so right. this idea of blood memory, you know, is experienced by, you know, Jews who are descended from folks in the Holocaust. I and mean, it's descended mm. from um, colonized peoples and, you know, um, like children of slaves. And, right. um, you know, because I work at an HBCU. So this is, a, this is a notion that when I bring this up in Native philosophy, while everything else is very foreign to them, this notion of blood memory and having the memory of the ancestors come with you over time is not. Mm, it's yeah. not a it's not an absurd notion they're like oh yes of course yes absolutely this, you know so, <laughs> and that's one of the um, things that that's one of the things i felt most plausible about the tradition when i first encountered it for that same reason yeah yeah and it i mean it i mean it, it does make sense because the connection connections just don't sever i don't think mm. and i think that we bring with us you know the, the difficulties, and I think I have a lot of a lot of personal experience with this, given like generational trauma in my own family, mm. um, so that I oftentimes feel feel the need to report back to them in my behavior, mm. um, or I feel the influence of them in the choices that I make, and I feel you know the influence of of people like my aunts and mm. my grandfather and stuff like that in in different situations um mm. but you know it's it's not it's one of those things that from a western perspective is just going to be like oh that's some voodoo shit um <laughs> <laughs> but but i i think the way that we are a product of our our kinships and our relationships and our connections, like it just makes sense that we mm. take those pieces with us. Mm, right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level 
today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's interesting. Do you, do you see this as tying into, because it sounds like there's, there's an issue of personal identity involved as well, right? So that like the, in, in a sense that kind of, well, if you think about what we are as individuals, as persons, part of that at least is what, is what our, our ancestors are. I mean, we're not like kind of distinct, kind of uh, autonomous, completely autonomous individuals in that sense. Is that something you find in the, in the tradition? Um, I think that, I think that people would largely agree to that claim. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I mean, just like ontologically speaking, we are not severed from the connections that come before us. Mm. So, um, because we are always in relation, whether to who is in front of us, um, or who came before us, I mean, you can, and, and I would, I would wonder if this is, um, something that maybe some adopted people experience having difficulties with, which is why they sometimes mm. look for their biological families. I, I know that um, a friend of mine uh, finally reached out to her biological family and, um, and things just started like make, so she achieved a lot of clarity mm. in her life and about herself by, by reestablishing those relationships and and I feel like maybe if there's some similarity there with like who who your kin are here I mean it it would just seem to follow that it mattered who your kin was not so long ago right right I mean I could be entirely wrong hmm. <laughs> yeah it's, I mean it, it seems like it's a, it's an idea the notion of kind of discovering who you are right as a matter of and it, it was similar to you know, how people like look at things like you know these uh, um, DNA tests and things like that to find kind of previous ancestors. The idea being like I'm kind of discovering something about myself. Right? This being the idea. Yeah, and one of the things that I have to be really careful with is is trying to be careful about the biological notion because it doesn't hold. Right. So right. I'm sure that you, you're. It's not in in Mesoamerican philosophy. I'm sure it holds the same that it's not. It's not a biological conception, but it's not wholly not biological. Right, right. It it's kind matter. of hard, like, I mean, because it's spiritual. Right. You, there, there are some, I mean, I think I would, I would term it naturalistic. Hmm. But I don't think that I would jump the bridge and, you know, and say that, it, oh, it's biological essentialism or, or hmm. anything of the sort. Um, right. Because it is, when, when native folks talk about and you know, just to repeat, as I said in the book, like I have no authentic upbringing. Um, my reason for doing native philosophy is to try to bring something positive to my family's difficult relationship with their identity. Um, so like, I don't have anything I can't contribute because I wasn't raised in these traditions, hmm. but um, I don't, you can rediscover, you know what I mean? You can reconnect, you can rediscover, you can do these kinds of things, but the, what, what causes the, the problem is not the break of the biological life, but like the break of the relationship to land and mm. the break in the relationship to kin. And that's not something that is, is, that has to be biological. Right. If, I understand that right you know what I'm saying it is it's about kinship and about place Mm. so and while you know we do talk about like inherited generational trauma and the way that um 
DNA can be affected and, and passed down. There is that biological aspect of it. But um, I think if we were to say that that's what it is and that's only what it is, then then we would be taking away a lot of, of what it is meant to be, which is about relationship. Mm, mm. So I, I've heard a, a, a lot of uh, philosophers recently, and I've read a lot of work recently where um, people are talking about knowledge. So you talk about, a lot about knowledge in this book, and they're talking about the kind of traditional Western notion of propositional knowledge um, as failing to properly capture like a wide variety of forms of knowing. I mean, what you say in the book, it seems like it's really consistent with this, right? A kind of alternative uh, conceptions of, of, of knowing. Um, and do, do you see that the Native American conceptions of knowing that you talk about here as uh, potentially independent conceptions of knowing that could operate on their own or, or rather something like forming part of a pluralistic or a syncretistic conception of knowledge that has something like propositional knowledge plus these other ways of knowing? Right. Yeah. So I think... Um... So what is what is supposed to be very specific to the analytic analysis is that it's the notion of truth mm. that is that is distinct mm. and that you know because it's a function of action, but that we can talk about knowledge and knowing in pluralistic ways. Right. So, and I think that it's also just part of like the native perspective to refuse to insist that there's only one way of ever doing anything. Mm, right. I think if I were to be like, oh no, there is no propositional knowledge. I mean, I'm, <laughs> there, there certainly is propositional knowledge. Um, but it, I would, the way that I try to make it clear in the book is to say, sure, there's propositional knowledge and there's procedural knowledge. It's that truth is procedural mm. and not propositional. Right. Right. I I wonder if this this idea that there's like the one true way or the one true knowledge has to do with this kind of idea of ownership that you were talking about before. Yeah, I mean, certainly <laughs> there's 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 got to be the one right way, and whoever whoever convinces or forces enough other people to believe it wins. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so it doesn't matter if it's accurate or if it's the best way or if it improves like human existence or like makes life better for the animals. Like is. <laughs> As long as it's the most popular, then that's the score. <laughs> right. Well, there's one thing in the book that I thought that, that, that you did that I thought was really cool. And there's this, there's, so there's like, a, I guess in the appendix, you have a, a 1921 letter um, from the head of the Canadian Department of Indian Affairs that argues for the suppression of the practice of dancing in Native communities. And I thought, I saw this fascinating because you, you, this is something you find often, right? So there's a suppression of things like the sun dance or the kind of ghost dance movement. And like the, it's like this problem with dance in particular as something that's that's problematic for a number of different reasons, right? So here in the letter that you talk about, it talks about how um, people are, be, are, are, are idle and they're not working and things like this because they're dancing. But then in other kind of contexts, it's, oh, it's dangerous or it stirs people up. Why, why do you think there's this, like, in particular, this kind of this strong response to dance in particular? I mean, there has been for colonized people all over, hmm. all over, all over time in the world, right? I mean, hmm. the slaves were were right. not supposed to dance. Um, hmm. I mean, I've seen Footloose. It's been a while, but they weren't <laughs> supposed to dance either. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the idea is that dance is very powerful. I mean, you don't need anything else for that kind of art and expression. It's It's a way of both... It's a way of simultaneously tapping in to tap out 
you know, that, that is, it's, it's powerful, it's spiritual, it's, um, dance can change, dance can change people's moods, it can change people's minds, it can, you know, it can change the, an environment, um, uh, I've just, I mean, I've seen a number of movies where many of battles have been ceased by the introduction of a dance. Mm. Um, mm. But I, I think that's just what it is. It's, it's that people, people gain so much through the activity of dancing that, I mean, it automatically leads a person towards a sense of freedom. Mm. Right? It leads somebody towards a connection to spirituality. It leads somebody... Um, to the higher ends of, I don't know, consciousness. That's a that's a janky word. That's not exactly the word that I'm looking for right now. But um, it brings us to a higher state, mm-hmm. and that higher state is always a productive state, like emotionally or intellectually or politically. It's also a bonding experience, right? It can mm-hmm. establish like relations of solidarity. Um, so I imagine, I mean, if your goal as a colonizer or as an enslaver is to keep people acting right and mm. and to not be worked up, right, then you're going to make sure that they're not dancing, if nothing else. Right, right. That's interesting. And there's, a, and there's kind of a self-directedness in some sense to that as well, right? In certain aspects of the, self, uh, of the Western tradition is like, this is something we're not supposed to do, right? And, I mean, it's, it, it seems like a kind of like, implicit recognition of, of its power or its meaning, right? Um, but then it's, it's, it's like beneath the surface, right? Nobody kind of tackles it explicitly, right? Right. And, and there are, while there's not much in mainstream philosophy on dance, um, even since I, you know, I'm still working on, on dance right now, um, there are a couple of places where people talk about um, the Eurocentric um, devaluation of dancing mm. be given either its association with the feminine, which you have to stamp out, right? Or with its with its valorization or acknowledgement of the body. Right. And the body itself being the source of all evil. You know what I mean? Mm. So um if if you know colonizers were already coming in with this sort of loathing of the body then encountering communities who engaged in knowledge production and knowledge sharing um, in part through through movement or through dancing, you know, and they engage in worship through dancing, um, that's going to be like a, a double jeopardy sort of situation where they they're they they they're hitting two two bad things at the same time. They're like, <laughs> well, we've got the body and we've got like the assumption that the body can can access God, mm. you know, mm. and we've got to we've got to get rid of both of those because they're both going to interfere with our ability to sustain like authority. Mm. Right, right. So one interesting thing in the in the in the final chapter, you talk about expressing expression of truth through dancing, and in particular, expression of truth through dancing and, and its connection to um, ex- individual or communal experience and locality, which I thought was interesting. That notion of location. Could you say a little bit about more about how that works in particular with location, the, the expression of truth in that way? Well, um, Brian Burkhart's book on 
uh, indigenizing philosophy through the land that I that I cite in my work um, does a significantly better job of talking about this than I ever can. But um, the general idea is that part of the meaning of our existence and part of our part of our understanding of the world is a function of our connection to place hmm. and of being in locality. And right, and that includes sub- like recognizing your own subjectivity and other subjectivity, not trying to be abstract or universal or objective or these kinds of things. And that um, you can you can generate um, more meaningful kinds of knowledge through dancing in the environment. So there are a couple of couple of things that I've read. Um, about some native and indigenous dancers where, um, which is much like ceremony, they, they go outside and they take their shoes off Mm. and they dance with the environment, with the land, right? Um, and that this brings them a kind of embodied knowledge that's tied to place, um, and it's it's definitely because because relation to place is not something that we're ever taught about in the Western tradition of Absolutely. any discipline. <laughs> definitely. Right. It's hard to kind of talk about it without it seeming mysterious. But if, if you take your shoes off and you go outside and you dance, it makes more sense. Um, I mean, I guess some people might think of it in terms of a wave if is being in communion with with the world and with where you come from um, and establishing relationships and establishing relationships of responsibility to the land um, and those kinds of things. So there, there are various ways that you can think about the connection between dancing and locality um, generally and from a Native and Indigenous perspective. But um, as... I don't think that I can do the best job when it comes to locality because I don't have that tie to place, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think that there are people who do have a really close connection to where they and their people are from. And that like when I try to talk about it, really it's more of me trying to intellectualize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a place inside me from which to speak about it. So I, I try to address these things um, by noting how important it is to um, Native and Indigenous frameworks. But sometimes it's, it's like, I can do my best to try to explain it, but it's not always going to be the clearest expression because I don't completely understand it myself. And it's, I think it's really important because a lot of times, as you mentioned, in the Western tradition, we tend to neglect our locatedness. I mean, we're located as well, and we don't, and we, and we sometimes act as if we're not, right? You know, like growing up, I always heard this thing like, "Oh, we don't, I don't have an accent." Like, you certainly have an accent, right? It's just, it's just you think of yourself, you think of yourself as non-located, something like. And we, it seems like there's a tendency to do that in the tradition, philosophical tradition as well, right? And you, you kind of, you kind of see that locatedness when you get outside of of the tradition and see other things like Native American philosophy and these other traditions. Which I think is really important here. Yeah, and it, it would be, 
I mean, given that we're all just entrenched in Western, like, in Western metaphysics, period, um, if you have not been raised in a traditional way, you're constantly trying to fight with the constructs that you've, that you've been given your whole life. And you're all, you're, what you're trying to do is see outside of it. Um, and even when you give it your best, and even when you get it, you can't always articulate it. Mm. And I think that's why it's really important. And I'm, I'm very excited that there are so many like young scholars coming up who are being able to reconnect with their traditions. Mm. You know, they're doing a lot of important work and a lot of um, reclaiming of their culture and their language and their practices, and they're bringing it to the academy. And this is great because, you know, some of us are struggling really hard to try to, to try to make a, like a foundation, especially, you know, when I think about native philosophy, there have been so few people doing it, Mm. but now that we're being more visible and we're putting out more work, there are other people who are able to engage in in these reclamation practices, and then they are going to be able to bring it to philosophy. And those are going to be the people who are, you know, really going to be able to tell you what it's like. I mean, you have sort of like the people who came before, you know, with Vidalori Jr., who was telling us all these wonderful things. Now you've got these young scholars coming in. And so we're, so it seemed like we were getting away from it, but now we're coming back to it. Like, Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I see a lot of shortcomings in my, in my work because, because I don't have any cultural practices and that's okay. Um, you know, I have a very constrained set of things that I can do philosophically. And for me, that is just to try to flesh out certain kinds of analyses, um, more deeply. And I then, think- you know, hopefully other people will be coming coming to this and then giving more substance to the ideas that are being set out. Hmm. I think, I mean, that could be really important to people like us, like what I work on Maya philosophy and don't have any, any ancestral connection there, but that it shows that people outside of, uh, of these traditions can actually engage with and learn from, right. And, and use the kind of ideas in these traditions. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's the thing is like, like you said, sometimes I think like people use the excuse that they they are not X for why they don't have to read it <laughs> right, or engage right. it or why the, why you know nobody is native at this school so so we should not have any readings <laughs> on native anything whatsoever. I, I feel like a lot of times like that's not helpful. Right, right. <laughs> like, that's not helpful. I'm like you read Marx. You know, outside of your own training, and you, now you can teach a little bit of Marx. Like, just you know, <laughs> um, come on, you can do it. And um, and there are lots of people who are engaging with Native Indigenous philosophy who are not Native and Indigenous, and they do great work. And mm. and those are things. I mean, maybe there's a, a debate, but you know, within reasonable constraints, that's exactly what they should be doing. And I pretty much try to think of the way that I do my own work is more under what qualifies as allyship work Mm. than indigenizing. So at Pacific APA, I'll be presenting a paper on like, you know, should we be indigenizing philosophy? 
And when I talk about what indigenizing philosophy is, like according according to this analysis, I certainly I certainly don't indigenize philosophy. I don't bring anything to the table that that needs to be brought to the table for philosophy to be indigenized. I do do native philosophy, and lots of people do native philosophy, but you definitely have to have stronger cultural ties and intentions to be indigenizing philosophy. And, um, you know, and I think that if people take up traditions with, you know, respect Mm. and thoughtfulness, um, that, you know, they can do that work too. That's, that's kind of why I push so much where native philosophy can, can improve on Western philosophy or where it solves problems that have existed in Western philosophy that if you look at it from these perspectives wouldn't be there, Mm. you know, um, is because I'm trying to create more space for native indigenous philosophy in the academy. And, and like I said, like, I, I don't write anything new, you know, just because, just because my father and my grandfather are of a certain place, you know, doesn't give me any special, like, special knowledge about, about what happens for Native folks. You know, I have just as much knowledge as most other people. I just have more of a vested interest in learning about it. Hmm. But I recognize that there are huge constraints about the way that I can phrase things or the, the influence that I can say that I have on it. Um, you know, like... I, like I said, I'm certainly not indigenizing philosophy. Mm. And I think that if, that if people recognize that, that engaging other traditions of marginalized people, um, I mean, that doesn't make you a colonizer. Mm. That, that actually alleviates some of the problems of imperialism. Right, right. Right. And... And I guess cooperation rather than ownership, right? Right. I, I mean, and it's, I mean, this is something that I think about a lot and it's, and it's a complicated issue, but I certainly, you know, when the publisher was like, Hey, you want your book to, to appeal to more people? I was like, yes, in fact I do. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want people to be able to cite native or indigenous philosophy in a regular ass paper. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to only cite native or indigenous work in native and indigenous papers. Amen. Absolutely. Like you can, <laughs> like you can just be writing on black anger um, and cite a native philosophy paper, and that was a bad example because black feminists are certainly more likely to be using native and indigenous feminists than any other people. That was just a student's writing a topic on it, and it came mm-hmm. to mind. But you know what I mean, like. You could just be writing about chairs and just so happen to read some native metaphysics and use it in your like bibliography. Mm-hmm. It's not like, right. oh my God, if this paper isn't about native philosophy, I cannot. That would be so <laughs> weird if I used a native philosopher. Like <laughs> Right, right. I don't know. Absolutely. Sorry. <laughs> so so uh um I'm curious, uh, what are your what are your plans to uh to extend the pro- this project on, on Native American philosophy into other areas. And so you talk mostly about knowledge here, but are you working on any other uh, areas and t- trying to tie this in concerning things in the Native American tradition? 
I mean, it's it's certainly related, um, but it is not an extensive Native American philosophy. I mean, I I guess you can, I guess it just depends like how we were talking earlier about how you define Native philosophy. Mm. I mean, I don't imagine that it's going to be entirely separate. So um, it's just not going to be like the Native American philosophy. <laughs> right. Um, so when I was writing the book, you know, all of the stuff that I was talking about was how dance is used as an, as an expression, um, and in a way of, of expressing truth and establishing truth and those kinds of things. But the more I started thinking about choreographing and, and dancing and the kind of ideas that I was having that would help me explicate some of the the more convoluted aspects made me realize that um, that practices of choreographing are also ways of, of creating questions about the world. Mm. So a lot of times people, a lot of, you know, a lot of dance theory and a lot of people will just say, sure, um, dancing can tell the truth or dancing is narrative storytelling or dancing does express or all these kinds of things. But I started thinking about it in terms of like mining your body for questions, mm. way to question the world. Mm. Um, there were like different kinds of practices of, of thinking about ideas and trying to engage in movement practices or choreographing practices that help you think about the kinds of questions you have about an experience or the kinds of questions you have about a social context or something of the sort. Um, and it's very difficult and it's all very intuitive. And I have been reading tons and tons of stuff and it's there. Um, but I can't, I can't get it out mm. yet. And so I just, I just keep reading like every so often I'll find these, these things and I'm like, yes, that is exactly what I need to be able to make this argument. And like the the pieces that I'm finding to help me put together my idea is like every three months. <laughs> like, and I'm reading, you know, I'm on this track where I'm trying to read like a hundred pages of philosophy a day, mm. and that's painful. <laughs> and it's just like, and I'm reading and I'm reading and I'm reading. And I'm like, this is fine. This is fine. This is fine. And then like three months go by and I'm like, Ooh, that's useful. Mm. And then I just keep engaging in this process because what I'm looking for isn't, it hasn't been said. Mm, right. And so I'm just reading everything that I can read, like in the cognitive science and activism stuff in like somatic in like somatic theory and dance therapy and um, like choreographing actual choreographing practices and, and Henry Bergson, like mm. for some reason, I'm very convinced Henry Bergson is giving me what I need. I just cannot figure out what Henry Bergson is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm reading all these things and I'm like, yes, this is going to give me something that I need. And I don't understand any of it. Damn it. Um, so that's, I mean, that's what I'm working on right now. And, um, I think like I thought earlier this morning about whether or not dancing can be used as a method um, 
is part of the trickster methodology that Brian talks about. Mm. Um, And then I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but um, in terms of like native philosophy, um, Sebastian Purcell and I are going to do um, a little published back and forth exchange about some of the similarities and differences between North Native American philosophy and indigenous South American philosophy. Oh, that's cool. Um, given my book. So he like did a, a review of my book and he was like, yes, yes, yes. Not quite, not quite. Mm-hmm. Yes. Don't know about that. And then, so um, all valid points, you know, and then, so his editor or the editor of the journal that published that review reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in doing an exchange with him. Mm. And then I asked him if he would be interested in doing one, and he said yes. And so now I've got to start reading a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> on South American mm, indigenous mm. philosophy. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it was you know I think it's going to require a little more work than we both think is necessary, but it might be it might be a um, an interesting project, yeah. right? So if if we're all trying to um, create a bigger space, this might be just another way of us creating more space for the intersections between native and indigenous philosophy and also creating the space to like differentiate the two and for different ways for, you know, Latinx philosophers to engage North native American philosophy. Et cetera. Mm, mm. So that sounds, that sounds awesome. I'm really looking forward to, to reading that. <laughs> so, but, but I, well, the books that he recommended to me are all in Spanish. So I had to <laughs> have my librarian, uh, go find me some English versions from interlibrary loan. So that's where my starting position is. I'm like, I'm already in a bad situation because I don't read Spanish, but, um, but it should be, it should be fun. I would, I would think it would be cool if we did like two or three, right? like little small things, nothing that, that crunched our time too hard, but also made for an interesting dialogue for the, for the people, <laughs> for the masses, the hungry masses. Right. <laughs> that's great. I know that's people at home are just sitting there going, you know what I'm missing in my life? A dialogue <laughs> between Shay and Sebastian. That's <laughs> oh, we can all use that. <laughs> we can all use that. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to thank you, Shay, for, uh, for, for talking with me about your book. It was, it's a really great book. And, uh, I would, I encourage everybody to, to, to check it out. <laughs> So th- thanks. <laughs> All right, no problem. <laughs>